Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. So much, Dr. Rinsman, for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles today and making time to to speak. Um, So we'll start. And the first question I wanted to pose to you is, right now, yes, there's a human resources crisis in nursing. And this was even before the pandemic. And I know that the RNAO completed a survey, I think it was last year about nurses and their stay in in the profession. And now with the current conversation of internationally educated nurses, the IENs uh, for short, and can they be able to assist that gap in terms of since there's about 20,000 of them to facilitate uh, this through the whole, I guess the long-term care staffing pool. Will this be enough or is this just a good start? So, you know, we have now, we used to say last time we spoke 20,000, we actually have more than 20,000 internationally educated nurses living in Canada. It's not that we are going to other countries and, you know, poaching them here because we don't believe on that because other countries need nurses as much as we need. People here are as important and people in other countries. Right. But these 20,000 plus nurses made Canada their home. So they're eager to work, they're eager to support patient care, whether it is in long term care. And by the way, I can put you in touch with one that now has five offers in long term care and she's going to choose one. And uh, that will be lovely. Carla is her name. Carla. Oh, she will love her. Uh, In love with long term care. That's where that's her field. And then others want to work in hospital, others want to work in home care. It doesn't matter where, they all are eager to contribute to patient care in Canada and to alleviate the stress of our colleagues in the front lines. So it got to improve the situation, uh, 20,000 or more. You know, I'm not saying all will be processed in one day, of course, but even if we were to fast track and process half of them, just picture the, the relief for the system and the eagerness of these people to work, the energy that it will bring, and my colleagues will be in another, in another you know, situation. Yeah. On top of that, we have uh, the bridging programs that need to expand, as you heard me talk about the Queen's Park Day. And the bridging programs is from PSW to RPN or PSW from R- to RN. And again, I can put in touch with Diana, who is a PSW that is actually studying now for RN at Ryerson. And then we have from RPN to RN bridging programs. Those bridging programs need to become, uh, number one, more flexible, because people many times need to, most of the time, need to continue to work. They need to continue to put food on the table. So they need to become more flexible vis-a-vis evenings, vis-a-vis weekends, vis-a-vis you know, other type of schedules, not your usual, you know, yeah, more yeah. nine to seven or nine to eight schedule. And then they, they, they also, we need to expand them. We need to expand them. We don't have enough bridging programs for the number of people that want to become actually yeah. uh, RNs from, from RPN. And then there is no not bridging program we need from also from RN from RPN to RN, we also need from uh, from RN to NP. Yes. And then we need, in addition to more flexible and more of them, we need to recognize prior learning assessment. So let's say I was a PSW 
or I was an RPM and I want to become an RN. And if I was, let's say, already five years or 10 years doing my role, well, that, that, that I was doing, if I had all the time good evaluation, should count for something because I already have a lot of experience, hands-on experience, yes. right? So that should be counted. And we used to have that in years past, in many years ago. We used to have prior learning assessment and so forth. Um, retired nurses. We are asking that retired nurses come back with compensation to mentor either the new grads that come on board or the IENs that come on board or a nurse that wants to come on board that has not practiced for a few years. You know, so that should be too. So when you put all the initiatives that we have spoken in the platform that we just released at Queens Park Day, is there a solution to the nursing crisis? Yes. Is there a solution to the RN crisis? Yes. And it's just now the will and the funding to make it happen. Uh, the Ontario Hospital Association put a release last week that they need 10,000 additional RNs, RNs, 10,000. Uh, do we have them? Yes. Uh, what we need again is the same that I said to you, right? Bridging programs from RPN to RN, bridging programs from PSW even to RN, the IENs, internationally educated nurses that are ready to go, just paperwork and, and, and ensuring that they are really nurses, right? That's the first thing and that they have done, they have the qualifications uh, and that needs to happen faster, of course. And the new grads that yes, the government did increase by 15% the number of people that now go into ARIN and, and that will graduate. So yes, there are solutions and no time, there is no opportunity time or, or place to give up. Exactly. And then with all of these different initiatives, the impact of Bill 124, what's the importance of why this needs to be repealed and the effect that it is having? So Bill 124 has become, in addition to a real constraint on compensation improvement, it has also become equally a symbol of perceived disrespect. Whether the Premier says at our Queen's Park Day that values nurses, and, and I believe he does, everybody values nurses. It needs to come with tangible actions, right? So the same as he increased the number of people that can now, uh, this number of seats for RNs and RPNs, we need now that same respect to translate into retention. And retention is Bill 124, and it's the top up of compensation. Because if we don't retain the nurses we have, we will need to continue to produce more and more and more. So that's not the solution. The best, best the recruitment is retention first and accompanied by recruitment. Definitely, definitely. And I know that we did talk before, you know, before the, the podcast started and it was about your the Queen's Park day and it was done virtually last week uh, February 24th where all the leaders of the parties in the legislature attended and were able to speak with yourself and amongst with all the other um, your colleagues and there were you as well 
provided your platform, your provincial election platform, but there was about 15 major points with that. And um, I just wanted to talk about in terms of with the senior strategy, which is part of that platform. And there was five major points within that. So one was the home care funding, because that's important because most of the people that don't have the resources at home eventually end up in long-term care. Can you just speak to that for a moment? So first of all, I want to thank you for being there. I want to thank you for always being so prepared for the podcast. There has been but not one podcast that I have done with you that you're not top-notch prepared. Um, I think I mentioned to you, Anukul, from The Pointer, another reporter that is like, Mwah! always well-prepared, always, and always with, with so insightful questions, and, and you too. So I just want to thank you. Uh, you need to know that for someone that is interviewed very often, yeah. uh, when we have people that have their not only heart, but have done the homework and are well prepared, it's just a privilege for us. That's when, when we ask me, should we reschedule? Because I'm dealing with the phone calls yes. from the border in, in Ukraine of people. I said, no, let's keep going I, until there is the next call okay. because you, just, you, you earn it. You earn it by your amazing preparation. I really want to thank you for that. It's a privilege. Um, we believe, first of all, and always, if you look at our ECHO report, an ECHO report, we issue it, uh, ECHO, ECCO. We issue it in 2012. Then we issue it again in 2014. Then we now reissue it in 2020, May 12th of 2020. Always we have said that strengthening community care is the solution to many of the system when, um, so in that ECHO report that we issued in, <coughs> in 2012 and then in 2014 and then in, in 2020, May 12th of 2020, enhancing community care for Ontarians, ECHO, ECHO 1.0, ECHO 2.0, ECHO 3.0. What we are saying fundamentally is that any high-functioning health system needs a strong community care. In 2014, in 2020, we also said that long-term care needs to be part of community care more than attached to hospital because home care, long-term care, but, you know, related to community, not just institutionalized. But the first fundamental piece is to, is not to try to keep people out of the institution because that's not what we are trying to, to limit, you know? Yeah. What we are trying is that people want to stay as members of the community, want to stay as long as they can and they want in their own place, that they have therefore the supports to be able to remain at home that is where they love to be. No one, none of us wants to be in an institution, whether you are an older person or a person with some type of uh, you know, disability, you want to be in your community than at home. And we lose out by not having people in, as part of our community. I was talking with you before we, we, we put the recording on that, just picture if it's older people or, or other people. Uh, your brother, take an yeah. example that goes to a class to be with, you know, 
uh, kindergarten children and, and kindergarten children become familiar with older people, with, with diversity, with everything we have in life, right? The richness that that does. You know, I always pride on my own kids that are not kids anymore, mm -hmm. uh, that they know how to relate to everyone. Yeah. They know how to relate to someone that is zero months to always, not just now, when they were kids too, to someone that is five, to someone that is 15, to someone that is 80, to someone, you know, with the same respect and with the same person-centeredness and it doesn't matter if they are this or that or that or the other or bright or not bright or whatever we call bright because to me, everything is bright. Every person is brilliant, right? And, and, and just picture if kids will have exposure to older people. Many of these kids don't have grandparents, many. I didn't have grandparents when I was a kid, right? Uh, I wish that I had, you know, those people all the time in my life, right? Exactly. I, I, so, so home care, therefore, is critical. Home care is central to support people and home care needs way more reinvest, investment than what we have. And then when the time comes that either you cannot be more at home or you don't want to be more at home, then the options of course are retirement homes or nursing homes, right? Well, retirement homes, it's good, but if you go to many retirement homes today, they really, in many cases, there are people there that are as complex as in a nursing home almost. So they need to be, the oversight needs to be under long-term care, right? Otherwise, they don't get the same benefits, the same hours of care that we are saying, the same oversight and supervision and staffing and et cetera. And then in nursing homes, I mean, you have heard in long-term care nursing homes, you have said, you have heard me we heard us saying before, and we did the campaign, if you remember, of the four hours of care, and we did it with older people saying four hours of care because of dignity, four hours of care because of this, because of that, because of the other. And we got it. I'm not saying we got it alone. You and your group and the family council and the patient, the residence council and you know other groups that have advocated Vivian and others, Dr. Vivian and many others have advocated big time for long-term care. Colleagues that work in long-term care have advocated and RNO, yes, also advocated hugely and we got it. And if you think the commissioner, uh, Commissioner uh, Morocco, he accepted our recommendation of the four hours, four worked hours of care, uh, and alongside with that of the staffing skill mix that we said, 20% RPN, uh, sorry, 20% RN, 25% RPN, and no more than 55% PSW. He took it exactly like that. And then the one and B, 420 residents, he took it like that. And then the one nurse, 420 residents for IPAC, that's different now. It doesn't need to be a, reg a nurse. And that is a problem in our view. Now, on the area of nurse practitioner for long-term care, 
we have a good check mark. We are not done because we said we want every home, but you may remember that the Rod Phillips announced 75 additional nurse practitioners. We already have 75 and we will continue to pursue that because every single home should have a nurse practitioner. The expertise of nurse practitioners are marvelous. And if there is a community that doesn't have a nurse practitioner, then take a CNS, a clinical nurse specialist. Those are adults with a master's in gerontology. You take a, a CNS on gerontology. They will be eager to contribute. So again, we can improve significantly the situation, both in terms of the amount of care and the skill mix that is necessary to, to deliver um, safe and quality care. There is one more element that we are now pursuing, and you may have heard me say at Queen's Park, which is the issue of evidence-based practice. You know that the guidelines of RNO that are implemented all over Ontario and all over the world, in fact, in 20 countries, are producing results beyond belief. So we already have about 140 nursing homes that implement the guidelines with better results. What we want is to embed the evidence-based guidelines in all the EMRs, all the electronic medical records. And that will bring that when you go to work, whether you are a pharmacist, a doctor, a nurse, a physio, a PSW, and you put the chart of the resident, all the, according to the, the conditions of that resident, there will be recommendations that are from our guidelines evidence-based, from the assessment to pain management, from person-centered care to palliative care and person-centered care, like the whole thing. And you still need to use your judgment because every resident is different, right? So you need to use your judgment, but at least you have that best evidence recommendation. And you know, you can't go wrong with that. So a lot of good things that uh, uh, some have happened in the last little while out of the tragedy. I call them the silver lining of the tragedy. That's what I call them but a lot more that needs to happen too. And the reality is that I do think that long-term care will be the silver lining of this pandemic. Uh, do I think the rest of the system will change as much as it needs? I don't know. You know, I don't go by, I don't go by fantasy land and I don't go by speculation. I go by reality. And that's why there is a platform there. We need to move back to one-to-one -one in ICU for ADENS. They cannot continue to sustain these workloads. It's also not safe. It's not safe for patients and, for, and the families should know that. So, but I do know that long-term care will end up uh, in a better place than before the pandemic. And it better be because Every single year, there is something in long-term care. The pandemic is one tragedy, but every single year, there is an outbreak on something. So if we have the right staffing, the right IPAC, the right NPs there, you know, and the better hours of care, and then evidence-based guidelines, things will improve significantly, significantly. And my gosh, let's see one thing that is good out of this mess of this pandemic, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. 
And uh, yeah, because you mentioned all of the, those five points, so I really do appreciate that. And the other point that I wanted to make in terms of what you mentioned, uh, what the RNA, RNAO mentioned at the provincial election platform is expanding the scope of practice for both not only RNs, but for nurse practitioner. What significant impact this would be as a positive for patient care in long-term care? So on that end side, what we are asking is RN prescribing that does not move an inch, not an inch. And just picture, RNs are the majority of the health professionals in the system. If I, I'm not saying RNs should prescribe everything, but RNs, of course not, but RNs should prescribe. I mean, you take Tylenol at home alone. You don't ask anybody. Or someone else takes Motrin alone. They don't ask anybody. Or whatever, aspirin, I don't know what else. You know what I mean? And even first-line antibiotics, RNs have the capacity if we do you know, and upgrading their expertise to do that. No more than that. Um, so just picture how it will open access, whether it is in long-term care, in home care, in primary care, etc. And then in peace, um, and we got that one more check mark. We got point of care testing, which how can an NP not have point of care testing when, you know, they can prescribe and diagnose and cannot have that. And the same with MRIs, MRIs and CT scans in all conditions, which is fantastic. And that is starting on July 1st and was announced at Queen's Park. And we couldn't be happier than that. And more needs to come. And it will come, I'm confident. And that really shows the connection as to why more nurse practitioners need to be in long-term care for that benefit. Well, so- just picture that you will have less of uh, if we could do more in long-term care, and I'm pushing the issue even of, of doing some more activities in long-term care, having the right staffing, if not, you cannot, and with the right expertise, you will have less, less movement of residents to emergency departments, which is very negative for residents. Residents in long, it's not because ERs or emergency departments are but it's because if someone comes after a major car accident with a major trauma or a heart attack or whatever, you know, uh, then it's difficult to give attention to someone that is relatively stable but needs ABC testing that could be done in the nursing home, right? Yeah. Uh, so that is very, it's not good for residents to be shipped back and forth to emergency department. The more they can get their care in nursing homes, the better in long-term care homes. And the more they use the outings not to go and visit emergency departments or ERs, but to go and visit family or to go to the mall or to go to an outing, that's where they should be spending the time when they go out, not, not in visits visits. They're not visits to the emergency department. They're nightmares for residents, quite frankly. Not again, not because the staff in emergency departments are not good people. They're amazing. But the priorities are different in an emergency department. And they wait sometimes for hours. They come back sometimes with pressure pressure injuries, you know, like used to be called pressure ulcers. And it's just not good. Just not good. So, and I know and that they next... sometimes, at times they come back even confused. 
because yes. the change on place, right? And they exactly. know the emergency department and all of that. And being transferred by, you know. And the expense of that, if you yeah. think, with the transfer ambulance. So from all directions, thank you for reminding me of that. From all directions, from the point of view of person-centered care is not good. From the point of view of their health and well-being is not yeah. good. And for the point of view of the system expense is not good either. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And, and as well, you mentioned, uh, the RNAO mentioned in terms of starting the nursing task force in the province of Ontario. Can so we did have one years ago, post Harris, post, excuse me, post Premier Harris, uh, RNAO called at the time for a nursing task force. And it was announced by Minister Elizabeth Whitmer at RNAO EGM. And at the time it was a nursing task force, but um, it lasted a, a year and many good recommendations that RNO had put along already on and on and on came into the task force. Thankfully now though, we are making some of those moves already, right? Like the increase in enrollment and the NPs in long-term care and the expanded scope, etc. What we want is the nursing task force, not so that they wait until the nursing task force to move with the rest of the things, but so that we monitor and evaluate outcomes and we add new recommendations if needed that RNO didn't think about. Yeah, definitely. And, I, and it, does that go into the fact of, you know, for the province to have as well a chief nursing officer? Is that the same line of thinking? Well, so there are two things. First of all, let me give you the good news that we have a chief nurse officer announced federally and we can talk more. You and I mm -hmm. spoke about that uh, years ago and, and, and it materialized. So let me talk about that in a minute. And the chief nurse officer in Ontario, we always have had. Um, so the person moved on to another role and the position is actually posted. So if you are going to put this in yep. the website now or in the Twitter, uh, please make sure that people can still apply because the position is open. Look at the date, I believe it's till March 8, 9, if I'm not wrong, I don't recall exactly. I tweeted about the position uh, several weeks ago because it was announced at, uh, beginning of February. Yep. So yes, there will be uh, again a chief nurse officer uh, in Ontario, the piece I can advance to you is that I want that position to be elevated to ADM, so to um, to report directly to the DM, Perfect. to the deputy minister, to Minister Zan. That's really where the position was when we first uh, secured that position, and I was part of that, and we want the position back at that level so people will stay for a lot longer. Definitely, definitely. And that would be a, a, a huge benefit. Yeah. Now, the other thing is right now, currently with childcare, um, Ontario is the only province that has not signed on to the federal well, program. And I would just wanted you to speak to the fact of how that is impacting in terms for nurses now and how that is impacting to, in terms of patient care. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's impacting all in terms of nursing. I want to talk about women and men. Everybody yeah. needs, parents, parents need childcare and need affordable childcare yes, because yes. to find the spot takes a lot of time and it's expensive and, you know, it's expensive for nurses, but even more for someone that is on minimum wage. So we need child 
scared and it's no rhyme or reason why everybody has signed but us. So the time to sign is now and there is no more discussion in the book of Arrhenio. Definitely. We will continue to push for that. Definitely. And, and, you know, going back to the point that you mentioned in terms of the advocating for the chief nursing officer nationally, because as you said, it was, you know, you had the RNAO had put this out May of 2020. And by January of 2022, it's now an actual position. And we, I just wanted you to speak to, I guess, the importance of advocating for such a role and to be able to see it go throughout the whole extreme from where you started to where it is right now. So let me tell you a bit of the history of that role. That role existed forever before. There was a nurse that I loved dearly that passed away a couple of years ago, Josephine Flaherty. And you should Google her and put a picture. An amazing lady, like. And she used to tell me, my mother said, every nurse, every student needs to belong to Arrhenio. And my teacher in school in the first day said, you need to belong to Arrhenio. So I belong to Arrhenio. <laughs> so I don't only love her for that, but she just was, she was a character. And she was a figure and she was inspiring. She became actually after she retired from that role, she became the parliamentarian of Arrhenio at the AGMs. Oh, she whipped us into shape with, with, with uh, spelling and with grammar and with well, an amazing lady. Now, when she left the role, the role was vacant for a few years and we actually pushed big time back then uh, to put the role back. And then Judy Shaman, Dr. Judy Shaman became the chief nurse and she was another, you know, a different era, a different time. Uh, she, she pushed the agendas. She was very impressed. She had been a president of RNA also, very impressed with our program on evidence-based guidelines, etc. She also retired. Well came Prime Minister Harper, and he did away with it. That's it. It's as simple as that, and that's the facts. And so we have been pushing for some time, but then when came, um, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and we, ha- we had the opportunity to take him to visit um, Ottawa Public Health Unit at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, May of 2020. And it, we were super excited, of course, like kids in the block that the Prime Minister was coming with nurses to visit nurses in public health. And my colleagues and I, Dr. Uh, Angela Cooper Brathway, and, um, and Morgan Offer joined via Zoom and me too, right? We didn't want to travel there, but colleagues there tra- were there, colleagues from there were there, Una Ferguson and then, um, and, and my colleague Esther Mogadan, the chief nurse of the Toronto Public, the, of the Ottawa Public Health Unit, they were like in heaven. And we went, we joined via Zoom. So it was, it was, very, it was very inspiring because at one point when he was talking and he was managing, you know, the pandemic and I said, you know, your father is smiling now. And then I kind of tongue and cheek said, and trust me, you want me smiling too. So I'm going to say to you, we really need a chief nurse officer in Canada. 
We used to have this position. We want this position back. There are amazing nurses. They could be helping you now with the, with the pandemic. And, and we need that back. And I remember seeing the prime minister, prime minister Trudeau taking note. And I thought, I am I'm seasoned, right? By now, someone is taking note about what, I, what I'm saying. It means they want to remember. So then we sent a letter. Then it was in the newspaper, in the, in the journal, the iPolitics a, a story. And then, you know, it took momentum more and more in the media. You guys talked and, and we sent more letters and we kept sending letters. And then I sent a couple of texts and I was told, you know, we are in the middle of third wave, I think was heavy duty. And then here you go, it became. So the, the, the learning for anyone and for Areneo, this is not new that this is a learning, but for anyone that wants to do good advocacy is persist, 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 but do it only if it's good for the public, not just for nursing. If it's only good for nursing, don't waste your time because you shouldn't be given that. And, and I deeply believe on that. Same for doctors. If it's only good for doctors, forget it. For pharmacists, forget it. If it's good for the public, whether it's the public during health to keep them well, or the public during illness, whether it's at the beginning of life or at the end of life, whether it's the public in home care, long-term care, hospital care, the public, then go for it and don't let it go. Don't let it go because it will happen. And this Definitely. is exactly the story. Which is which is nice to which is actually nice to see because I mean even as you said, it's one of those silver linings within this pandemic, if we can have one. Um, and this is definitely showing to others in terms of the consistency, in terms of something that is a benefit to everybody, brings in some sort of value. Yeah, but you know, we need to do it now across yeah. the country. Because while Ottawa will have one chief nurse, and we have one, and Manitoba, I believe, has one who is excellent also. Not every province has, and they used to have. So trust me, we will continue now to harp that every single jurisdiction and every single jurisdiction being that the province or the territory, they need a chief nurse because chief nurse, you see nurses bring to policy, uh, number one, they bring humanity. I'm sorry, all disciplines too, but we are 24 by seven next to that patient in good times, bad times or in the middle times. We are in health and in illness. We are with all populations, rich, poor in the middle, in the streets, in the homes, in the shelters, everywhere, everywhere. Um, so that's number one. We bring that perspective. Uh, we bring the perspective of crisis management, 100%, because we are used to it with every, in every sector. As a nurse, we bring that. We need the perspective of social determinants of health because nurses are, we are educated in that, in that gestalt, in the, in the social determinants of health. We believe the same as I said to you before, that um, community care needs to be expanded because it's a hallmark of high functioning systems that primary being anchored in primary care is not a luxury 
is, is, is the hallmark, is, is one of the key indicators of a high functioning system. The same goes with social determinants. We are there first to keep people healthy. Nurses are there first to keep people healthy. And that is not healthcare. That is environmental determinants, all the mess that we have with climate change, with pollution, with you name it. Uh, and social determinants, if you're poor, you cannot, you can still be happy. Some people, yes, and yes, you know, happiness is inside your heart, but you're not going to be healthy if you're poor. You know what I mean? Uh, there is a direct link between income with education, number one, and the more income, the more educated people are simply because they can afford it more. There is a direct link between more educated and health outcomes. And there is a direct link between all of that and the systemic, for example, racism, discrimination, etc. Uh, if you look at uh, newcomers, there is a direct link. Just it's, you know, even in, 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 a, in a Hamilton, depending on where you do your surveys, is the health outcomes you get sometimes 10 years of difference in life expectancy. They don't just happen because it's not only about life choices as they call, you know? People, single mothers or single fathers for that matter that are running between three jobs because they don't have a full-time permanent job with good, with good compensation and with benefits. They end up eating, you know, cheaper food not because they don't like organic whatever. They can afford organic whatever. Um, when they go once in a while to an outing, they go to McDonald's not only because the, the kid likes the Happy Meal, but they, that's what they can afford. When they don't cook so much at home, it's not because they don't want to cook. Yes, some, some of us, I mean, I cannot say us because I love cooking. So take me out of yeah. the equation. <laughs> uh, but, but some people, and I'm not going to say women because men also cook, don't like to cook. But the great majority is not that they don't like to cook and they, they can't afford the, the good groceries to cook a good meal and it's cheaper to buy a McDonald's. So it's not a choice. It's not exactly. exactly. And as this, you know, pandemic continues. So, so, so those nurses bring that perspective also to the chief nurse officer table in the prime minister right. milieu. Not that others don't, because he has MPPs that do, but those are MPPs. This is at the civil servant level, and nurses bring a unique, rich perspective that will benefit both the federal government with the chief nurse officer at the federal level and Ontario with our chief nurse officer. I can't wait to have one back. Yes, definitely. And I just wanted to, you know, as, as we close out in terms of with the, as the pandemic is continuing, what, and then with changes that the Ontario government is uh, indicating in terms of relaxing the rules uh, in March, what are your, I guess, your thoughts in as we continue? So I was looking for my, for my, uh, for my mask, because I use the KN95, which by the way, you also need to be able to afford it compared to others, right? So that also influences that. Uh, my advice to the public, first of all, 
thank goodness they have not announced that they are going to do away with the masks. Although I'm afraid they will, likely mid-March. Um, not using a mask outside when the weather is good is not an issue. When the weather is bad, actually, it warms you up. So it's kind of nice. That's what my kids and grandkids say. But I would advise anyone, when you go to an indoors place that is not your home or not the home of people you know very well that you know are careful, I would suggest in indoor stores, in indoor malls, in indoor gyms, in indoor you know, groceries, keep your mask on. In the subway, in the bus, keep your mask on. Absolutely do. Uh, there is no reason why we should ditch the mask. Not for the children in schools and not for the adults. Because um, there are countries that always have used a mask. I tell you, I don't think I will ever be in a bus and not use the mask. I don't think so. That's it. I got used to it. It, you know, it protects you even from the colds, you know, and then you do the, the washing the hands for the colds. And I mean, ask people that in these last two years, all of us have suffered less colds than ever before, ever before, you know? So I'm all for it. And as it relates to COVID, for sure, for sure. For sure. Omicron was super fast transmitting from one to another. The next one, and there will be a next, a next variation, you know, variant will be faster even. So keep your mask on, be smart, regardless of what the government says, and get your vaccine. If you haven't gotten the first dose, dose still is time. If you haven't gotten the second, still is time. And if you haven't gotten the third, still is time, do it because it prevents you in simple terms from being in an ICU and from dying. I cannot be more clear from that. You know what I mean? The great majority, great, great majority of people that ended up in ICU and more even so the ones that die are people that were not vaccinated or that only had one dose. Uh, the three doses is what we need and likely there will be a fourth one and I will be on the lineup when it's my turn and I know my kids and grandkids too. And I can't wait for the little ones because our little one is not vaccinated. She's four. And, um, and it's concerning. It's concerning because this thing that kids don't get it is fantasy land again. Kids may, for the most, not get it as seriously, but they transmit even more than adults because they don't know anything. Think of washing their hands and not touching the nose and, you know, and not coughing in front of you. <laughs> And all exactly. that stuff, right? So, so they they actually transmit it even more, and we need to protect them too because they're not yeah. vaccinated. Definitely. So. so, thank you so much, Doris, for coming on. I really do appreciate your time and the listeners as well. So, again, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Take care, and let's keep in touch. Definitely. Bye. -bye. Thank you for listening to this episode and if you liked it please make sure to like subscribe and follow wherever you're listening to podcasts